We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Stop Talk Radio, the world for people who think. Hello and welcome to Salt Talk Radio. I'm your host, Neil Bradley. My co-host this week, Joe Quinn. Hi there. And Pierre Lescodon. Bonjour. So this week, NATO, from regional defense pact to global military, we're interviewing Rick Rozov. I hope I pronounced his name right. Rick is, let me see where I put his introduction here. Rick has been an investigative journalist and anti-war activist for some time. He's the editor of the Stop NATO website kind of speaks for itself, which tracks and documents global militarist trends. Rick's on the line with us. Welcome to the show, Rick. Thank you for having me, Neil, and colleagues, uh, Joe and Pierre. I'm glad to be with you. Excellent. Great. Well, we were going to play a little... We were going to take a... A, a, a little... Unconventional <clears throat> show beginning and play a little bit of a speech by uh, John Kerry. When did he make this? Um, he made this April 29th to the Atlantic Council. Yeah. Which is kind of, a, maybe Rick can explain it well, after the intro, but uh, yeah, basically okay. a civilian. We'll just play it, just 44 seconds, and we will uh, get uh, yeah. Rick's comments, and we'll take it from there afterwards. So here it is. And after two decades of focusing primarily on our expeditionary missions, the crisis in Ukraine now calls us back to the role that this alliance was originally created to perform, and that is to defend alliance territory and advance transatlantic security. And nobody should mistake that. And we are prepared to do what we need to do and to go the distance to uphold that alliance. Together, we have to make it absolutely clear to the Kremlin that NATO territory is inviolable. We will defend every single piece of it. There you go. Uh, Rick, um, what, what is Kerry talking about there? Specifically, uh, it uh, stuck out for me, the, his comment, uh, advance transatlantic security. I mean, what's some American president over there, 5,000 miles from Europe, talking about transatlantic security in, um, for somewhere basically in the middle of Eurasia. Yeah, that's a very good question. Incidentally, a very wise choice of excerpts. Had you gone on for a sentence or two, though, he would have said that, uh, you know, referring derogatorily, pejoratively to uh, the Russian government as the Kremlin. And this is more mm. than uh, yeah. you know, just uh, just a case of a, a literary trope. I mean, this is this is meant to uh, to cast it in a negative light. But the statement yeah. that came almost immediately following the excerpt you, you used says that there's a threat to the entire uh, model of global governance or, or global rule, perhaps, he said, but something very clear to that. And these are all tip-offs. But keep in mind, he was addressing, as you mentioned, the Atlantic Council of the U.S., which is the preeminent 
um, think tank in the world uh, for sponsoring the elaboration and expansion of a global NATO. But uh, since it was formed, I believe in 1961 or thereabouts, there's been a proliferation of comparable organizations throughout the world. There are some 30 or 40 Atlantic councils or the equivalent thereof. The very title, by the way, is similar to the top governing body of NATO, which is called the North Atlantic Council, which is uh, is constituted by the respective ambassadors of the uh, uh, NATO nations. So what he was when he uses terms like uh, Euro-Atlantic or Transatlantic or Atlanticist, or uh, you know, by the way, the name of the two-day conference that he addressed at the Atlantic Council was "Towards a Europe Whole and Free," and that's another very significant phrase, but only for the initiated. You know, I have to put it mm-hmm. this way. Uh, you know, John Kerry, you might, you might recall when he ran for president, when he was the Democratic Party nominee in 2004, was derided by his Republican opponents for being a Francophone. You know, that was if so mm-hmm. facto reason not to vote for somebody. Uh, wow. However, what he, what he in fact represents is that, I would argue, dominant wing of the U.S. ruling elite that very much is uh, Euro-Atlantic or uh, Atlanticist in nature. So when he was speaking there and making at the Atlantic Council, he is using terminology and uh, building on concepts that would be understood by the elite fraction of 1% of the population of the United States and by nobody else. Mm-hmm. So, and, you know, there was a comparable statement where former uh, State Department and NATO official Nicholas Burns uh, was introducing Madeleine Albright, former Secretary of State and current head of the uh, National Democratic Institute for International Affairs with the National Endowment for Democracy, and um, the former, the second George W. Bush administration's National Security Advisor, Stephen Hadley, and boasted mm-hmm. of the fact that the Atlantic Council is the fastest growing think tank in Washington. It is and with good reason. Uh, The other think tanks may be um, advancing U.S. geopolitical uh, uh, interests around the world, but uh, the Atlantic Council is meant to expand history's first global military bloc, which is, I think, what you were alluding to uh, when Mm -hmm. we talked about the transformation of NATO during the Cold War period. So, you know, Atlantic Council is where the uh, transatlantic elites, elected by nobody to that position, accountable to nobody but other elites, uh, planning uh, the geopolitical uh, the division of the globe uh, the, uh, in a manner that benefits none of the respective populations of the countries affected, uh, but certainly does, you know, the uh, the uh, um, uh, elite uh, geostrategists or so the self-styled ones who were, you know, uh, mm-hmm. that he was addressing indeed. So, is is that what uh, NATO was originally conceived to do? Was that built into the original NATO? Maybe you can take us back to founding of NATO yeah, and just. That's a good question. You know, on April the 4th, this past April the 4th, uh, NATO celebrated its 65th anniversary. It was uh, launched in 1949, of course, and as to what it was ostensibly created to do and what in fact it was, uh, I think there's uh, a lot of room for interpretation there. But whatever the initial intent was, uh, and I don't believe it was as... um, Innocent, uh, certainly as philanthropic as uh, NATO apologists tried to portray it as being. What has mm-hmm. transparently occurred in the last 23 years, particularly since the formal dissolution of the Warsaw Pact, the Warsaw Treaty Organization, incidentally, you know, the very name suggests it was modeled after NATO, and mm-hmm. it came into existence six years after NATO. 
in, uh, only in response, not so much to the creation of NATO, but the absorption of the Federal Republic of Germany into NATO. But uh, 23 years ago, with the dissolution of the Warsaw Pact, which had been moribund, really, for years preceding that, and the fragmentation of the Soviet Union, uh, what the U.S. then did was use the North, began to use the North Atlantic Treaty Organization to achieve military domination throughout the entire European continent, which it has now, uh, thereby freeing it up for um, you know military adventures in the Middle East, the broader Middle East, and now the Asia Pacific region, uh, but also uh, to uh, set up a network of military partnerships through NATO that effectively absorbed or revivified, re- revived and restored other Cold War military blocs, also modeled after NATO the Central Treaty Organization, Southeast Asia Treaty Organization, Australia, New Zealand, uh, U.S. uh, uh, Treaty Organization, ANZUS. And uh, members of all of those blocs are now NATO partners through various partnership programs. So what the U.S. has succeeded in doing in the last 23 years is created history's first global military bloc. Hmm. So um, every time I I think of NATO, every time I see NATO acting or discussing or having acted on on a global stage, I kind of think, um, I wonder to myself, to what extent can we say that NATO is more or less the U.S. military by, by another name? It is just that. You're correct. And we have to recollect, even though the two positions didn't become coterminous until afterwards, the first top uh, military leader of of, uh, NATO when it was founded, actually a year after 1950, uh, the the, uh, title is the same as it is now, by the way, Supreme Allied Commander of Europe, was Dwight D. Eisenhower who, of course, mm-hmm. came to that from, uh, position from being Allied uh, Supreme Commander for the Western forces in World War II. So, in a sense, what you've seen is simply a continuation of the um, Anglo-American, Anglo-American, mm-hmm. Anglo-Franco-American, if you will, uh, military structure in World War II, extended to include other countries in Western and Southern Europe. However, when NATO was formed uh, 65 years ago, it uh, consisted only of 12 nations, uh, all of whom except for Italy uh, were either on the North Atlantic Ocean or close to it. Uh, however, in the decade from 1999 to 2009, NATO absorbed 12 new member states as a 75% increase in membership in that decade. All mm-hmm. of those nations in Eastern Europe, from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea to the Aegean Sea. And this uh, has effectively then created a cordon sanitaire along Russia's entire western flank, you know, from uh, you know, the Baltic states down to the eastern Mediterranean. And we also have to recollect that uh, now, if, depending on how you count them, but by my count, 39 uh, nation states in, uh, in Europe or in the uh, Mediterranean Sea that are considered European countries. I'm talking about the small island nations of Malta and Cyprus in the la- latter instance, with the, and I'm excluding the microstates like Andorra and, and Liechtenstein. Uh, mm-hmm. But of all the European states, including the three in the South Caucasus, which the West refers to as European nations, Armenia, Azerbaijan, Georgia, every single one of them is either a member of NATO or a member of a NATO partnership program, one or more NATO partnership program, I should add. Uh, Russia now, uh, with the, the, the NATO-Russia Council, uh, that, that relationship seems to be in abeyance. Uh, 
But with every other European country, it uh, you know is a member or a uh, apprenticeship member, uh, if you will, uh, an apprentice member of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. I've often had occasion to state that what a Charlemagne, uh, Napoleon Bonaparte, or Adolf Hitler only dreamt of, the U.S. is effectuated in Europe through the military subjugation of the entire continent under a U.S.-controlled military bloc. Yeah, well, it's way beyond North Atlantic at this point. Yeah, you mentioned... Uh, Napoleon, Hitler, Charlemagne. It also reminds me of uh, what happened during the Roman Empire, because this NATO, this military coalition, is very much similar to the Roman Empire army, where there was not only Roman soldiers, but a lot of soldiers coming from uh, subjugated people and territories. Uh, it seems like the armed um, instrument of the U.S. Empire that's a very good point. Yeah, as a matter of fact, as a um, um, almost necessary corollary, correlate uh, to the the excerpt that uh, we heard earlier from um, uh, John Kerry, the Secretary of State of the United States, talking about NATO, uh, just perhaps three or four days ago, the Vice President of the United States, Joseph Biden, was at a military base in Romania as uh, joint U.S.-Romanian uh, war games were occurring. Uh, under the code name of Carpathian Spring, and he made a statement. I'm quoting him almost word for word. He stated, uh, "NATO's Article Five, uh, what is politely known as Mutual Defense uh, Clause, which is in effect a war clause, uh, it is uh, the uh, evoking or the uh, or, I'm sorry, the activation of Article Five in 2001 that has led to the NATO participation in the war in Afghanistan, to NATO's permanent." naval uh, surveillance and interdiction operation throughout the entire Mediterranean Sea, Operation Active Endeavor. And by the way, that's another um, you know, parallel with the Roman Empire we could talk about in a second. But Biden stated while he was in, outside of Bu or in Bucharest at the military base that uh, NATO's Article 5 obligation is sacred, his word, and is good not only for now but for all time. So right. you, you understand the kind of metaphysical, if not um, mm. uh, messianic, uh, language that is being used. I mean, it, it truly is evocative of the Roman Empire. And I certainly, you know, the next day wrote an article comparing him with the Emperor Trajan, you know, whose tr uh, column in Rome celebrates his victory over the, uh, the Dacia, which is modern-day Romania. And that what you're seeing in many instances is a replication of, you know, let's keep in mind, one of the major architects of NATO expansion in the Cold War period is the infamous Zbigniew Brzezinski, uh, who in his 1997-1998 book, The Grand Chessboard, uh, refers to the United States and its vassals and tributaries, it is the very language. Uh, comes from it. We also, you know, something I think very important to remember when um, Nicolas Sarkozy was talking about a Mediterranean Union, uh, the title of which I think was later changed to Union of the Mediterranean to be less uh, offensive to certain parties, he invited uh, all the, uh, the literal nations and the island nations in the Mediterranean, but others close to it. And there was only one country that refused to attend uh, the meeting he had called to uh, discuss that, and that was Libya who's head of state at the time, Wilmar Gaddafi, said what Sarkozy is trying to do is recreate the Roman Empire in the Mediterranean basin, in fact. 
And hmm. what, NATO, what NATO is doing now, you know, it overlaps, of course, at every turn with uh, the U.S. What I was, uh, had not completed my thought, I'm afraid, when I talked about Dwight D. Eisenhower being the uh, Supreme Allied Commander of Europe, since his time, every Supreme Allied Commander of Europe for NATO is also the top military command for uh, uh, the U.S. military in Europe, Euro- European command. So that the you know the positions are uh, what they call dual hatted. Uh, one mm-hmm. person occupies them both simultaneously to show the you know uh, almost identical nature of uh, heading up U.S. military forces and NATO forces in Europe. But the same thing with the uh, the Mediterranean now. Uh, by the way, Libya. Uh, since uh, um, NATO launched a six-month uh, overwhelming air war against a small, essentially defenseless nation of barely six million people, uh, conducted almost 30,000 air missions, including almost 10,000 of what NATO itself referred to as strike sorties. Uh, since then, uh, Libya has been uh, declared a candidate for another NATO uh, partnership program called Mediterranean Dialogue, which uh, uh, to date includes as full members uh, Jordan, Israel, Egypt, Tunis, Algeria, Mauritania, and Morocco, so that NATO already has memberships on on the African continent as well as throughout the Middle East and Central Asia, uh, the South Pacific, Far East Asia, around the world, indeed. So, uh, yeah, the image of the Roman Empire uh, is is not uh, a gratuitous one. I think it's one that also bears uh, scrutiny in terms of uh, a parallel with what's occurring who who are they? Uh, these architects of NATO and the pushers of NATO around the world. Who are they, uh, in theory, anyway, f- um, fighting against, or who are they protecting against? A uh, consistently diminishing or constantly diminishing group of nations with any sort of independent foreign policy orientation. By my count, perhaps as few as twelve or fifteen in the entire world. And right. uh, what I mean is, is this. Uh, uh, Perhaps three years ago, there was a guest editorial in the London Times, you know, one of the more prestigious mouthpieces. Prestigious mm. not in our, our opinion, but one of the more yeah. dominant uh, mouthpieces for the international elite, the Western elite. And it was um, uh, co-authored by Patty Ashdown, uh, mm. who was uh, you know, the former viceroy, effectively, for Bosnia, for, for the West, after the fighting ended in that, in that nation. And also the infamous, again, George Robertson um, of Port Allen, um, who had, was NATO General Secretary during the bombing of Yugoslavia 15 years ago. And the two of them said, in essence, in, the, in this jointly crafted um, op-ed piece, that the West, which has enjoyed um, a dominant relationship in the world over the past three centuries, and in fact they were being too modest, I think half a millennium would be more accurate, that is, you know, since mm-hmm. the advent of the great colonial era, of over 500 years ago, the West has played a dominant role. And now faced with a new world, where the world's second largest economy is China and the third is Japan's, with the um, uh, emergence of groups like the Shanghai Cooperation Organization or the, you know, the so-called BRICS bloc, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, with now, you know, as of a couple, three years ago, the community of Latin American and Caribbean states, 33-nation, uh, you know, organization in the Western Hemisphere. Uh, the Western elites uh, are scared that they're losing a grip on the world that they, in fact, have had for 500 years. Let's recall that NATO... Uh, not uh, initially not including all of them, but very shortly thereafter. By 1955, NATO included all the major European colonial powers. 
Britain, France, uh, Portugal, uh, Spain, Netherlands, Denmark, Germany, Italy, Turkey. Uh, and these are people who are used to uh, being heeded, uh, people used to being um, uh, you know, uh, followed and obeyed. Mm-hmm. And for the first time in history, we have the you know, prospect of them not playing a dominant role, and I think they're using the one weapon they have most – I mean, they have control over international financial institutions and control over uh, – you know, uh, sometimes <laughs> – by the way, Brzezinski refers to it as a quadripartite U.S. Uh, advantage in the world in the same book I mentioned, the 1998 uh, Grand Chessboard. Uh, one of the factors, and maybe in the long run uh, not an unimportant one, he refers to his American culture, uh, hastens to place in parentheses, by the way, whatever one thinks of it. Mm-hmm. So I think that we have to uh, acknowledge the, uh, the dominance of uh, European languages, of European culture, even if it's a very um, shoddy and, and uh, cheap and uh, inhumane uh, popular culture, but nevertheless its ability to influence thinking around the world uh, on a mass level. Hmm. So... <clears throat> What does it what does it actually mean for these member states to be uh, a NATO member? I mean, is it just participation in war games, or is there any other kind of uh, tie-ins or um, advantages, if, if we can call them that? The, the advantages are hard. Uh, I'm hard pressed to uh, to think of. Uh, the demands, however, are, are, are you know fairly obvious. There are demands that every NATO um, full member state, but also candidate states, spend at least 2% of its gross domestic, uh, domestic uh, product on, on military acquisitions and equipment oh, or expenditure. Yeah. Uh, with the express proviso, I should add, that these weapons be interoperable, to use NATO's expression, meaning you've got to dump your Russian weapons and, and yeah. you know, maybe up until recently Ukrainian weapons uh, in favor of uh, U.S., French, British, German, and I might add Swedish. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sweden is, in my book, for all intents and purposes, the 29th member of NATO, uh, mm-hmm. with perhaps Finland and Israel thrown in for good measure, uh, Georgia. Um, mm-hmm. So that uh, these are some of the demands, but they're much more far-reaching than this. We've seen, for example, the first round of NATO expansion in the post-Cold War period was in 1999 during the 50th anniversary Jubilee Summit in Washington, D.C., uh, for which um, uh, the Clinton administration and the Tony Blair administration in Britain planned uh, a couple of shows for the world. One of them was the absorption of three former Warsaw Pact countries into NATO, the Czech Republic, Hungary, and Poland, but also NATO first war and you know if I could put it uh, so inhumanely uh, fireworks display to prove what NATO was capable of doing of course the war in Yugoslavia went on for 78 days it didn't uh, end within days as I assume the NATOites uh, had intended it to um, the resistance on the ground you know by the people of Yugoslavia was such as to prolong the war and bring it to a very dangerous pass as a matter of fact but uh, the three nations I've just mentioned um, uh, account for three quarters of what is uh, you know, colloquially known as the Visegrad Four group uh, in Central Europe. The fourth is Slovakia, but Slova- Slovakia had to wait another five years to become a NATO member because the Slovak people were voting the wrong way in presidential elections. Uh, mm-hmm. To wit, they were voting for uh, you know Vladimir Mechiar and his political party, and and uh, NATO and the EU and the US let it be understood that if his his party not only could not govern his own country. 
no matter what the people thought about it in their, you know, in their, with their votes, but that they could not even be a member of a coalition government. So um, Slovakia had to be politically purged first before it was a suitable NATO, NATO member is what I'm, I'm trying to get at. And what we've seen with the uh, 12 new NATO members that have been absorbed is, I think it's the first, you know, going back to Pierre's, uh, allusion to the Roman Empire is the first time I've seen this term used since uh, you know ancient Rome. But uh, what are called lustration laws in countries like Bulgaria and Romania, where anyone who had served in a position of authority during the previous communist or socialist uh, governments, in security and the defense industry and the military and so forth, they're simply purged for life. Mm. And uh, so joining NATO means a lot of things. It also means this, and this is something uh, I think most of the world didn't uh, properly pay attention to. Uh, up until recently, we've now seen the, the drawing down of NATO forces from Afghanistan, which constitutes a couple of, you know, the war in Afghanistan, which will be 13 years uh, uh, this October 7, uh, since it was uh, launched, is the longest war in the history of Afghanistan. It's the longest war in the history of the United States. It is the largest single uh, concentration of foreign military forces in Afghanistan's history. At peak strength, 152,000. The vast bulk of which, towards the end, I think all but perhaps 10,000 of the U.S. troops were uh, serving under the International Security Assistance Force, which is uh, run by NATO. There were troops officially, what are called troop contributing countries, officially from over 50 countries serving under one military command in one country, and that military command being NATO's, over 50 countries. Nothing like this has ever occurred, you know, prior to this. In World War II, there weren't 50 belligerent nations, much less on one side, much less in one country. So what NATO was was able to do, and this quote you, you played by John Kerry, where he talks about it with the drawing down or the withdrawing from Afghanistan, what he uh, at least intimates in that comment is that Afghan, and what I've asserted for years, the Afghan war has been used not to win. I mean, there's no way you can win uh, in mm-hmm. ill-defined uh, 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 or that uh, conflict of that nature, but it was meant to be a, a testing ground uh, to build up NATO interoperability with the armed forces of over 50 countries, and that that being mm-hmm. achieved, uh, countries like Georgia, which fought a uh, five-day war with Russia almost six years ago, and has its troops uh, gaining combat experience in a war zone for conflicts nearer home. Uh, Finland, which has not been uh, belligerent in a war since World War II, but is now uh, conducting combat operations in northern uh, Afghanistan. Sweden, which has not been at war for 200 years, uh, is conducting combat operations serving under NATO in Afghanistan. Uh, What uh, the U.S. has done is used uh, the war in Afghanistan and used NATO in order to build up uh, military interoperability with the 50 countries I alluded to, but also to train um, uh, combat forces for several European countries that have borders with Russia. Hmm. So, in a certain sense then, I mean, originally NATO was created in 1949 as a <clears throat> defense pact against uh, of the U.S. and Western European countries against uh, Soviet Russia. And now, in particular, with the uh, recent Ukrainian situation, it has kind of uh, reestablished itself uh, in, on, under those terms or with that, with that remit. That's true to a degree, but I I think we have to be very careful about the chronology and certainly the causality. 
the propaganda experts in the West are playing off the fact that people have short memories and they do everything possible to ensure they do. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the very mechanics of how the mass media are structured in the, in the West are meant to uh, diminish one's uh, ability to concentrate and recall and so forth. And I mean, you know, almost uh, neurolinguistically and otherwise, that the uh, argument now is that uh, NATO has uh, been... But, uh, in mothballs, or uh, the, the typical arguments are, it's a, an alliance in search of a mission. It has to reinvent mm-hmm. itself, and, and all so forth. Yeah, I would reject that categorically. That, mm-hmm. uh, as I alluded to earlier, uh, NATO was employed, or revived, and expanded by the United States immediately upon the breakup of the Soviet Union 23 years mm-hmm. ago, and was expressly. Uh, refashioned to be a global military force. The NATO response force, for example, and Ukraine is one of four countries prior to the, the, the current crisis in Ukraine, uh, prior to last November, uh, was one of four non-NATO countries selected to contribute uh, men and materiel to the, the NATO's global uh, response force. It's called the response force, which was inaugurated, I should uh, uh, point out, uh, eight years ago in 2006 in the small African island nation of uh, Cape Verde, Capo Verde, uh, mm-hmm. off you know, the Atlantic Ocean, where there was a massive uh, series of war games, you know, air, sea, and land, over 7,000 troops. The Secretary General of NATO at that time and, and other leading members came to inspect the war games. Now, you, one could ask oneself, why is NATO uh, conducting a massive um, you know, military exercise in an African island nation to launch a global response force? But anyways, Ukraine was one of four countries that was selected who are not yet full NATO members to participate in that. The other three are, and there's significant, uh, Georgia, Finland, and Sweden. And... What the uh, what NATO this is you know years in advance of of what is occurring now in Ukraine so that what you're uh, you know hearing from the, uh, the likely uh, media suspects like the New York Times Washington Post Le Monde or what have you is that you know NATO now is uh, making up for its lost time by uh, uh, shoring up its military in Eastern Europe because of the Russian bear and so forth this is a complete reversal of the truth there has been a steady ineluctable uh, inexorable. Uh, military buildup by NATO along Russia's western borders, going back at least to the 2004 uh, massive ex- NATO expansion at the Istanbul summit that brought seven Eastern European countries into NATO at one time. Of course, the largest single expansion of NATO uh, in its history. And immediately afterwards, uh, U.S. and NATO started moving into air bases, naval bases, and so forth, and Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Bulgaria, Romania, and this has been going on uh, steadily ever since. Uh, it's much, I think, uh, more reasonable to suggest that with the uh, overthrow of the elected government in Ukraine in February of this year, that Russia saw Ukraine coming right up to its western border, directly up to its western border, and took measures accordingly rather than to state that NATO is now um, you know, expanding its presence on Russia border, Russia's border because mm-hmm. of the events in Ukraine. So maybe it's uh, more accurate to say then that uh, NATO is essentially the U.S. Imperial Command and always has been, and it's, uh, it was designed to essentially project U.S. Imperial power around the world by absorbing other countries into, into the structure. 
Precisely that. It was a, it was a, uh, the pretext needed to maintain permanent U.S. military presence on the European continent. NATO is the uh, framework within which that occurs. It permitted for the first time the U.S. to bring nuclear weapons into Europe and to Britain initially. Uh, immediately after the formation of NATO, and to this day uh, permits the U.S. to, under what's called the NATO burden-sharing or, uh, or NATO nuclear-sharing arrangement, to maintain U.S. tactical nuclear weapons and air bases in Germany, Turkey, the Netherlands, Belgium, and Italy, uh, under, uh, the, uh, with the understanding that these weapons would be delivered not by U.S. warplanes, but by warplanes from the respective host countries. So, yes, I mean, it, it's certainly that. No, I'm not, uh, you know, exculpating uh, the European members of NATO, or at least, the, you know, the governing elites in those countries from also serving their own ends, uh, particularly in terms of becoming, uh, you know, arms manufacturers and exporters. If I'm not mistaken, I believe Germany now is the third largest exporter of arms in the world. So NATO has been good to Germany, and it's been good to NATO partners like Sweden, which is one of the biggest merchants of death in the world. And, yeah. uh, you know, the, Fr the French and British and other NATO members who were able to sell uh, billions of dollars of weapons to Eastern Europe under NATO interoperability mandates, you know, are certainly making out on this, too. But, yes, you're correct. The U.S. is, you know, uh, unquestionably. Uh, you know, the prime mover in setting up NATO and, and the main uh, factor in NATO. So it's not really about, uh, as they would claim, about security and, and defense and protection of NATO member countries, but that NATO is essentially the, the kind of, that, that's a cover for uh, more, more likely um, American economic infiltration and dominance of the globe under the, under the threat of, uh, under a military threat from NATO. You know, I'm, yes, you know, I'm, I'm questioning the, the, the security aspect of it here because really what countries in the world are, are really, in real terms, threatening Western Europe or the U.S. militarily? Yes, NATO has taken over air patrols in Iceland uh, from the United States, which you know, found it convenient to turn it over to NATO. Uh, I believe currently it might be U.S. warplanes on that rotation, but nevertheless it's done under NATO uh, command at the moment. Uh, and one would certainly have to ask, right, uh, in what manner is Iceland or is Luxembourg threatened in such a manner that you need a global military bloc to protect them? Uh, yeah. Second of all, the latest uh, uh, NATO partnership program, and there are a whole series of them, but is one that was launched ahead of the NATO, the most recent NATO summit here in Chicago two years ago this month. And it's called, and I, I think the title alone gives us a good indication of what we're talking about, Partners Across the Globe. And the initial, the eight first members of the Partners Across the Globe are all in the larger Asia-Pacific region. In, from the Middle East to the South Pacific, they are. Iraq, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Mongolia, South Korea, Japan, Australia, and New Zealand. Again, I made the allusion to NATO uh, absorbing members of former military blocs like ANZA, CENTO, and CETO, and here you go. Uh, but we're also uh, the Prime Minister of Japan, who is a revisionist and a um, you know, militarist, uh, Prime Minister Abe, was recently at NATO headquarters in Brussels signing an individual partnership and cooperation agreement with NATO under the rubric of uh, the Partners Across the Globe arrangement. So you, um, you know, have the, uh, not only do you have all the major colonial powers in NATO now, you have all the Axis powers in World War II that are either NATO members or NATO allies. Um, you know, I don't have to enumerate them, but they're, you know, they're Germany, at least, Spain, Portugal, Romania, uh, you know, mm. Japan, and so forth. And uh, 
these, and by the way, the constitutions of countries like Germany, Italy, and, and Japan expressly forbid their remilitarization mm. and playing a, you know, an active role in, in combat operations around the world, but it hasn't stopped uh, Italy, Germany, and Japan from meeting for the first time in history uh, in Afghanistan. Hmm. Something that um, stood out for me in the excerpt from Kerry's speech we played at the end of the show um, the forcefulness with which he gets on his high and mighty horse about protecting our territory. I guess there he's referring to Ukraine. I mean, if so facto, is Ukraine a NATO member and or considered their territory? No, you're correct about that. He he talks about uh, every square inch of NATO territory being covered under the Article 5 war clause. Uh, but he, the comment immediately before that, as I recollect, is uh, all NATO members are committed to the defense or to the you know, of, of Ukraine, uh, which is not a NATO member state, and as such, really not under uh, the provision of you know, Article Five, but you know, intimating that it is. However, there's a little bit more dangerous and insidious an aspect to this than I think is immediately apparent. What he's really doing is replicating, in many ways, what uh, the Secretary General of NATO currently. Uh, outgoing, uh, Anders Fogh Rasmussen has been saying for two or more years now in relation to uh, Turkey, particularly vis-a-vis Syria. When he, uh, Rasmussen has repeatedly stated, and this is on the occasion of NATO de- deploying six uh, advanced Patriot uh, Missile 3, Patriot Advanced uh, Capability 3 missile batteries to uh, southeastern Turkey, right you know, on the Syrian border, but also dangerously close to the borders of Iran and Iraq. And uh, Rasmussen repeatedly states that Turkey is, is NATO's southeastern border. And I think what became apparent to many of us a couple of years ago, and by the way, the NATO has also consolidated and shifted its allied land command to Izmir, Turkey. Two years ago, they deployed an expand forward-based missile, which is part of the, the, the NATO and U.S. Uh, interceptor missile system. Next year, for example, 24 standard missile three interceptors are to be placed in Romania. Uh, immediately across the Black Sea from Russia. But that what we're seeing is uh, something, I think, comparable or analogous in relation to Ukraine, which is what Kerry and company are saying is that uh, every country, every NATO member bordering Ukraine now is to Ukraine what Turkey is to Syria, and that NATO is prepared to defend those uh, member states against uh, what what is transparently uh, an implied Russian uh, threat, and that uh, if NATO will not go to war over Ukraine per se, it will most assuredly go to war over Estonia or Latvia or Poland. Or, or as, uh, you know, as Mr. Biden reminded his Romanian host, over Romania. Mm. And um, Kerry used the word defense twice in his speech. And if I correctly understand your reasoning, NATO is not about defense at all. It's about aggression. Like it was done in Mali, in Djibouti, in uh, Yugoslavia, and uh, many other countries. That's the first lie. But another fundamental lie I, I can see from what you say that... Uh, NATO is not here to protect the host countries. Of course, they're deploying those, uh, all those missiles in Europe, targeting Russia, but at the same time, it's a way to lock the host countries because de facto, this uh, military pressure, all those missiles, uh, make it impossible for European countries to step back 
and gain this their military independence, econo economic independence. Uh, do you understand this point right? No, you're absolutely correct. Uh, it, you know, it's been remarked by others, but uh, the record uh, demonstrates it so, that no country has ever joined NATO and been allowed to leave NATO and will not be allowed to leave NATO. Worse than that, no single country has joined an, a NATO partnership program and has been allowed to, to withdraw from it. The one exception was a few years ago where Malta, because of a change in, after elections, a change in the government, withdrew from the Partnership for Peace program with NATO. By the way, that Partnership for Peace program was used to graduate or promote the 12 new members of NATO in Eastern Europe between 1999-2009. It currently has some 23 members. And uh, when Malta's government shifted, no doubt, you know, with the active intervention of the U.S. and its uh, NATO allies, which can exercise no small degree of influence in a comparatively small nation like Malta in terms of the outcome of a federal election, in terms of funding and heaven knows what else. But when the uh, Nationalist Party uh, took power in Malta, they immediately rejoined the Partnership for Peace. The only European country, again, outside of microstates like uh, Vatican City, uh, that had not been a member of, a NATO, of NATO or a NATO partnership program with Cyprus, but with the uh, Western-sponsored uh, you know, uh, victory of right-wing forces in Cyprus a couple, three, uh, two years ago, it was immediately announced uh, that Cyprus is going to join the Partnership for Peace, in which case not only is all of Europe uh, a member of NATO or NATO's Partnership for Peace, but the entire Mediterranean basin is either a member of Partnership for Peace, NATO, or the Mediterranean Dialogue, except for Libya, which is being brought into the uh, Mediterranean Dialogue, Lebanon, and Syria. And there's no hmm. question but that the West intends for Syria and Lebanon both to join the Mediterranean Dialogue. That would make the entire Mediterranean basin, uh, to use again a Latin expression, NATO's mare nostrum. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so I Iraq, for example, is currently tied into this Partnership for Peace program? Yeah, Iraq is, uh, no, it's uh, part of the partners across the globe, but it also has an individual okay. partnership uh, program with, um, with NATO. What NATO intends for Iraq is what it intends for Yemen. In 2004, at the Istanbul summit of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, as we talked about a moment ago, where seven Eastern European nations, including three former Soviet republics, were brought into, uh, into NATO at the same time. A number of other initiatives were taken, including uh, something actually contains the word initiative, the Istanbul Cooperation Initiative. And this was another uh, specially crafted partnership program aimed at the six members of the Gulf Cooperation Council, uh, you know, the hereditary monarchies in the Persian Gulf. And to yeah. date, uh, you know, four of those six are formally members of this partnership. They're uh, Bahrain, United Arab Emirates, Kuwait, and uh, Qatar. Uh, Oman and Saudi Arabia are de facto members. What uh, uh, U.S. and NATO intend is to bring Iraq and, and Yemen uh, into the Istanbul Cooperation uh, uh, Initiative, that NATO program, uh, as well as bringing Libya, Syria, and Lebanon into the Mediterranean dialogue. There's no question about that. Yeah, it's 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 kind of wow. It's multi-decade and then it's multi-level at the same time. Uh, you know, presently they seem to be they seem to be like they seem to be trying to push as much paper as possible, if only to lock these countries into a system that makes it ever harder for them to get out. Uh, I just want to go back to something. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. 
Yeah, I was just going to say before I forget this, you know, because we had talked about the formation of NATO, uh, the American uh, scholar, uh, Edward Herman, who I, I hope your listeners are acquainted with, uh, who continues to be a very – he's uh, contributed, as a matter of fact, a, a chapter to a new book on Ukraine that's been edited by Stephen Lenman. Lenman also here in Chicago, by the way. Uh, I recommend the book on Ukraine. You can go to Stephen Lundman's website. But you know, Edward Herman has written over the years that he, for one, doesn't believe that the North Atlantic Treaty Organization was set up in 1949 to defend Western and Southern Europe from any Soviet threat, which I think most of us now acknowledge that did, did not exist, that mm-hmm. the Soviet Union in 1949 had neither the ability nor the, the desire you know, to roll across the, you know, the plains of Central Europe to the... You know, um, um, to you know the English Channel or anything of the sort, but rather that NATO was set up expressly to politically manage Europe to make sure that no part, political parties that the U.S. opposed ever entered a government. And mm-hmm. I think that's a pretty clear allusion to communist parties at the time in nations like France and Italy, that uh, not so much that they would govern exclusively or even predominantly, but the, even the so-called historic compromise that was being considered in Italy in, 19, in the 1970s would not be affected because uh, NATO um, you know, security uh, provisions overrode uh, the democratic will of the people of any given country. So that uh, Herman's argument, which I think is a sound one, is that NATO was meant uh, for you know, the continue the uh, indefinite uh, military presence of the United States in Europe, but also meant to uh, politically control the European continent. Look, let's look at something like the Portuguese Revolution in 1974, for example. Uh, you know, NATO warships were off the coast of uh, Portugal and the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, there, there would have been a NATO intervention had uh, they not been able to uh, achieve their, their aims uh, otherwise, and there was certainly no military threat being posed to any NATO nation. Yeah, it was an internal political struggle. A peaceful yeah. political struggle. So where do they get their, uh, I mean, where do they get their legality from? They don't, right? There is no, we're not talking about anything legal here. It's, uh, it's essentially a lawless organization that kind of assumes legality to itself on the basis of a group of politicians in different countries agreeing that they have the right to attack someone else. In, in, in essence, yes. Uh, however, uh, you know, the uh, devil is rarely as uh, black as he's painted, as the expression I know. But uh, he's, he's rarely as simple-minded, perhaps, as, as we believe mm-hmm. he is. And in the NATO charter, what's called the, um, the North Atlantic uh, Treaty or the Washington Treaty, it's referred to also, uh, it does state, for example, under Articles 4 and 5, you know, for mutual defense, that it's in line with the respective or the appropriate uh, UN uh, resolutions and so forth. Or not resolutions, but uh, articles and chapters. So there is some effort to give it a window dressing the, to show it, uh, you know, abiding by international law and, and the United Nations. However, I should mention that uh, I think this is about five years ago, uh, Hans von Sponek, uh, who was uh, both Deputy Secretary General of the United Nations and also the uh, humanitarian coordinator for the United Nations in Iraq, before the invasion in 2003, a few years before, uh, wrote a lengthy article in a Swiss publication where he, he demonstrated that uh, uh, NATO is trying to usurp the role of the United Nations internationally, that NATO's uh, guidelines and those of the United Nations are not only distinct, they're antithetical. And he was referring particularly about a, a backdoor arrangement made uh, by the uh, uh, United States and NATO with uh, Ban Ki-moon, 
towards the end of 2008, whereby basically a secret agreement was reached between the United Nations and NATO behind the back of permanent members of the Security Council, Russia and China. Um, so there have been you know, many moves of, of this sort afoot to try to portray NATO. And I think, you know, let's be honest about this, Neil that I think a lot of people in, around the world, uh, not only in the United States, when asked what they believe the North Atlantic Treaty Organization is, probably don't understand that they're talking about a strictly military organization, that they probably see it as something comparable to the United Nations. And uh, that's just one case where the West has won, I think, in large part the propaganda battle by portraying its uh, military bloc as, as something distinct from, if not uh, quite contrary to, what it actually is. Hmm. Yeah, I guess in the name we have treaty organization, so it, the legality they derive is from the treaty between nation states, which of course is a double-sided coin because they routinely flout the sovereignty of other nations. For example, when it came to Libya, did, they didn't get a re UN resolution or they did get one, but it had a very specific mandate. Yeah, it was meant to be a no-fly zone. A no-fly zone, which... NATO interpreted as a green light to bomb the country. Well, they pieces. fabricated evidence by claiming that that old, uh, tired old uh, excuse of he's attacking his own people or he's killing his own people, which proved to be completely false. So that was a completely illegal and lawless aggression. I mean, it's like something out of the Wild West, if, if that's who the Wild West ever was. I mean, it's just the law of the gun. And it was, as we've seen, it was uh, essentially just to expand the American Empire into... Uh, into Libya that wasn't playing, playing the imperial game at that point. Right, you are, uh, and uh, there are you know there are various degrees of um, you know egregious violations of international law. The seventy-eight day uh, air war against Yugoslavia uh, uh, fifteen years ago uh, occurred without any United Nations authorization. The uh, mm -hmm. invasion of uh, Iraq in 2003, of course, also occurred without uh, UN resolution, which in large part, I think, accounts for why NATO didn't formally uh, participate in uh, both the invasion and the occupation. However, uh, out of um, you know the, the current 28 members of NATO, all but five had troops serving under what was called multinational force Iraq. That is 23 out of 28. And those mm -hmm. who did not, you know, Canada, uh, Belgium, Luxembourg, Germany, and, and France, increased their troops in Afghanistan to compensate for it. So it was a division of labor. And uh, the South Central Division in, uh, of uh, you know, occupa occupation forces in Iraq, which was set up by Poland, was supported by NATO. So, you know, it's – and Libya, you're correct, UN Resolution 1973 – um, you know, uh, allowed for a no-fly zone, not, as we talked about a few minutes earlier, uh, over 26,000 air missions and almost 10,000 combat uh, strike sorties in the country, which is certainly not mm -hmm. envisioned in that resolution. Yeah, uh, there's something else that, uh, okay, you said that NATO is more or less synonymous with the U.S. military structure. How does the... U.S. military's division of the globe into CENTCOM, AFRICOM, EUCOM, etc. Is this kind of running in parallel to their various treaty partnerships? 
That's a very good question, and thank you for asking it. Yes, it, this is, uh, again, one of those cases where, you know, whenever a precedent is established and whenever you, we catch ourselves speaking in superlative terms, uh, you, you know that something significant is occurring. And the U.S. alone, after World War II, and to this day, and actually expanding, uh, reserves uh, to itself, uh, arrogates to itself the right to divide up the entire planet into military uh, commands, uh, what are called unified combatant commands, and particularly those of a regional nature, so that you have the entire world carved up. Uh, and by the way, two of these commands have been formed since the end of the Cold War. Uh, one of them, a northern command, was set up after 9-11 of 2001 and includes Canada, the United States, and Mexico. But the, the only um, extraterritorial U.S. command that is overseas command is Africa Command, which is set up in 2007-2008, which is uh, in the post-Cold War period. It takes in every country in Africa except for Egypt, which remains under central command, which is something we can talk about, uh, just as Israel is the only country outside of Europe that's under European command's area of responsibility. So they, they indeed overlap, you know, what you're talking about, the, the NATO partnerships with uh, the U.S. regional uh, unified combatant commands. Uh, the U.S. also divides the world up between naval fleets. There are six U.S. fleets that divide up, uh, you know, the waters of the world. Um, and uh, you, you have this uh, unparalleled and unprecedented uh, military, a global military presence, which is now being reinforced, sometimes for public relations reasons, as I think you were intimating perhaps, Neil, that you know, it just looks better if the U.S. walks in with 49 partners as opposed to doing something completely on its own. Mm -hmm. But we do have to remember that 40% of the casualties suffered in Afghanistan by foreign forces were non-U.S. NATO forces. And we're talking about country, you know, soldiers from countries, again, like Finland and Sweden being killed in combat operations. I don't mm -hmm. think many. I don't think many people in those respective countries know about that. You know, much less, or that you know, small military contingents from Ireland and Switzerland and Austria have been serving in a war in Afghanistan. Um, but until people understand what NATO membership really entails, let me give you even a better example. Uh, Sweden, which is a member of Partnership for Peace, has 500 troops, or did until recently, in northern Afghanistan. Again, in combat operations, they supplied several warplanes for the air war against uh, Libya three years ago, Operation Unified Protector. They uh, are engaged in any, and, and perhaps two years ago, three years ago at most, they uh, eliminated the last uh, remnants of conscription in the Swedish army and made it completely a professional army, which is a precondition for NATO membership. And every member of the Swedish armed forces had to sign a waiver uh, agreeing to being stationed overseas or they had to resign from the, the armed forces of Sweden. So what we've seen is NATO has taken national militaries that were used or at least intended for territorial defense of their homeland and turned them into expeditionary forces that could be deployed anywhere in the world. Yeah, wow. Yeah, uh, and you said actually um, a few minutes ago that two constraints to join NATO was to have a at least two percent of GDP dedicated to military expenses and to uh, have interoperability of uh, military devices. This being said, if you have some countries like the example of France, since they joined NATO, the military expenses keep decreasing although it's still above the 2%, so it means less military power. And this interoperability means also that you have no more military independence 
audio or military devices are hackable and uh, not uh, independent and uh, robust anymore. So it means that even if you have an army, a nation has an army, de facto this uh, army is powerless because of the very constraint to join NATO. You're correct about that. And uh, we do know, of course, that when Nicolas Sarkozy became president of France, he brought uh, France back into the military command structure of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, for which France was rewarded, okay. if you will, with uh, by giving the first major NATO command, that of the U.S.-based uh, Allied Command Transformation in Norfolk, Virginia. Uh, prior to that, there had only been one major NATO headquarters in Brussels. Uh, but, you know, for the last 15 or so years, there's been one also in the United States, and the first commander of that was, was a French officer. Uh, so the, not only uh, does it sacrifice really the national sovereignty and it uh, yes. endangers the security interest, you don't have any nation joining this military bloc, but if France, you know, still desires to say, uh, you know, sell Mistral, uh, you know, warships to Russia, uh, the U.S. can effectively block that, you know, through mm -hmm. NATO uh, military command structures and, and prevent a nation from, you know, operating even a commercial matter uh, in a way that the United States doesn't support. Um, another question, Rick. Now that we've drawn all those analogies about uh, past empires, how do you see the future of NATO and uh, the future of the U.S. empire? How do I? You know, that's. I, I wish <laughs> I, I could prognosticate, uh, and well, I wish I could be me, optimistic. Yeah. Let me let me maybe define a little bit. I mean, you you've mentioned I think uh, in passing <clears throat> already that. Um, that this NATO expansion to the borders of uh, Russia into Ukraine, threatening to do so anyway, um, threatens to ignite a kind of a potentially a, a major war. Do you see that on the cards? That, uh, that's a distinct possibility. And uh, I, I fear that unless some third force, and I have no idea who that third force would be, I have to be perfectly uh, candid with you, uh, intervenes in some manner diplomatically that I don't see any uh, ability uh, for Russia to do anything other than capitulate, nor do I see any indication that the West is going to step down. Uh, look, they're paying back Russia for Syria. That's, that's transparently obvious. A statement mm. months before the event. In early December, the Speaker of the Lower House of the Russian Parliament, the, the, the State Duma, a fellow named Dmitry Peshkov, said that uh, the crisis in Ukraine, which had not achieved anything like its current dimensions, is payback for Syria. Hmm. And, uh, you know, what the U.S. and its allies, and by the way, there was uh, Bloomberg News a few weeks ago, a couple months ago perhaps, uh, stated, I don't know who they're quoting, that uh, France and the United States were hours away from launching military attacks against Syria when it was finally halted through Russian diplomatic uh, initiatives. And that, uh, in a way, the West is now going to create, has created Syria, indeed, on, on Russia's western border. So, you know, what are the prospects for this being diffused and it, it not uh, proceeding, uh, it doesn't look good. I mean, I just have to tell you, this is maybe the major East-West confrontation, uh, you know, surely since something like the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962, uh, but perhaps in some ways, given its direct uh, propinquity, its direct proximity to the Russian border, uh, you know, you don't even have a buffer zone anymore. In the words of George W. Bush, maybe 10 years ago after NATO expansion in 2004, he says the Warsaw Pact has now become NATO. Yeah, just to give our, our listeners a, 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 an explanation there of the of the Syrian situation, it was it seems that Russia was working behind the scenes and obviously to to defuse the 
the threat of a NATO attack, and what they did was they basically uh, got a, a, an agreement, uh, an official agreement from the Assad government that they would, you know, dispense with their 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 chemical weapons, etc. And that this was the threat. The reason that the the West and NATO couldn't go ahead and bomb anyway and ignore that was because maybe there was going to be a there was a threat that they would release this data, you know. If they did that, if they invaded and attacked, um, that there was an, a, a peaceful resolution that the U.S. Uh, kind of just completely ignored. And uh, it's uh, it's funny that that the U.S. is it gives a real insight into the mentality that these people that these people have in, in NATO and in the U.S. that they were incensed enough at the the fact that they were prevented from bombing the crap out of Syria by Russia that. They were so incensed that they would then seek to, uh, you know, create a, almost a civil war on um, uh, on Russia's borders and try and give Russia some some problems in that sense. But it's a funny kind of payback in a certain sense because I think uh, Russia is probably quite content that they've uh, absorbed a little bit of extra territory and some very strategic territory into into Russia as a result of this payback. That's you know that's an interesting paradox and and you're correct. Uh, however, and, and you know historians will sort this out if we survive this crisis, and again, that's not guaranteed. Uh, but uh, there are a couple of possibilities. We have to recall that at the Bucharest summit of NATO in 2008, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization explicitly stated that an invitation had been granted both to Georgia and to Ukraine to become full NATO members that it was an understanding that both countries would be fully integrated into NATO as members, but that certain preconditions had to be met. And just as Pierre was stating there, you know, a couple of major uh, demands on NATO members in terms of percentage of gross domestic product expended on the military and interoperability, not only of weapon systems, by the way, but of military technique, of language, English, Mm. Uh, and, and other methods of, you know, of integration under U.S. command. But that there were two major um, preconditions for joining NATO that neither Ukraine nor Georgia met at that time, and they are unresolved conflicts on the nation's uh, soil and foreign troops on their, on, in their territory. Now, in the uh-huh. case of Georgia, this meant, at the time, a comparatively uh, small, almost minuscule, uh, contingent of Russian peacekeepers in Abkhazia and South Ossetia which are, you know, were claimed by Georgia and had, in fact, been part of the Georgian Soviet Socialist Republic, but had never been part of an independent Georgia, at least in modern times. And, uh, by the way, those troops being mandated by the Commonwealth of Independent States, of which Georgia itself was a member at the time. Uh, and uh, the fact that, uh, you know, those two countries were, uh, you know, not willing to be... Uh, to be reabsorbed by Georgia, were the barriers for Georgia's incorporation into NATO. In the case of Ukraine, even though, uh, and by the way, Abkhazia and South Ossetia are two of what are referred to as frozen conflicts in former Soviet space. The other two, and it's worth paying attention to them, are Transdenister in relation to Moldova and Nagorno-Karabakh in relation to Azerbaijan. But I've argued for years, Neil, that, and Pierre and Joe, that the fifth frozen conflict was always Crimea. And because uh-huh. the Russian Black Sea Fleet had its headquarters in Crimea, then it was p- p- perfectly obvious when, when NATO said Ukraine's coming in after they met the preconditions. The preconditions meant the eviction of the Russian Black Sea Fleet from Crimea and the subjugation of Crimea so that it was uh, you know, beholden to Ukraine or – and I'm following up on your, your suggestion here, Neil, or that maybe it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world if Crimea split from Ukraine – 
in which case the remainder of Ukraine could easily be absorbed into NATO, as it now has no foreign military forces on its soil, and it has no mm-hmm. unresolved territorial conflicts. Now, what, wow. what this means, you know, you know, going back to at least 2008, the director of the Missile Defense Agency of, of the U.S. Department of Defense, this is the agency that is on the basis of the Ronald Reagan administration's strategic defense initiative, so-called Star Wars, had been meeting secretly with, uh, you know, the Orange Revolution government of uh, Viktor Yushchenko and, and others. Uh, but, but even recently with the Yanukovych government, as recently as two years ago, NATO was openly talking about placing missile shield components inside Ukraine. This now becomes a distinct and immediate possibility. Hmm. That's an interesting, that's the kind of Russia was baited uh, theory on the Ukrainian situation that, in fact, rather than a coup for, for Russia and Putin, uh, to get Crimea, they were baited to take Crimea so that uh, Ukraine would be uh, essentially uh, more easily assimilated into NATO. Number one. Number two, because there's been a presidential election where it looks like the billionaire chocolate king has defeated the multimillionaire mm-hmm. gas princes, uh, to the yeah. applause, of course, to the entire Western uh, democratic, transatlantic, Euro-Atlantic, uh, you know, uh, democratic uh, uh, Yay, democracy. alliance. Yeah, yeah. What yeah. what democracy, right? Yeah. Uh, but at any rate, uh, the uh, in, the continued inclusion of Crimea and Ukraine would have tilted the votes against precisely these sorts. I mean, you know, for all his uh, uh, manif- manifold uh, deficiencies, uh, Yanukovych and the Party of Regions won the presidential election four years ago because enough votes were cast in Crimea to t- tip the balance. So mm-hmm. you take Crimea out of the equation and out of Ukraine, and then the ability of pro-Western, even uh, you know, ultra-nationalist forces to win elections has now just been enhanced. Then again, it's that sounds neat. Yeah, but then again, it's very, it's very um, uh, the Black Sea Fleet and access to Crimea and access to the to the uh, the Black Sea. And therefore the Mediterranean. And therefore the Mediterranean. A warm water port is very essential for Russia, and I think it would have been a blow for them to have lost that. Oh, no question about it. But I, I don't know that there aren't Western policy planners who prepared for just this contingency yeah. and saw it as more of a victory than a defeat. And, but when we talk about mm. the connection between Syria and Ukraine, let's remember that uh, Russia has its only uh, naval docking facility, a repair facility, in the, the entire Mediterranean at Tartus in Syria. Yeah. And that the ships coming there are, were exactly Black Sea uh, uh, fleet ships, you know, overwhelmingly, uh, coming mm-hmm. from uh, Sebastopol and the Crimean, uh, you know, Crimea uh, through the uh, Dardanelles and the Bosporus and into uh, the Mediterranean. It almost appears as though uh, to consolidate control of the Mediterranean, which is not only now, uh, you know, NATO's... Um, a standing NATO maritime group, uh, one, I believe, one or two that is in the Mediterranean area, uh, as well as the Operation Active Endeavor. By the way, the first non-NATO country to supply a warship for uh, this permanent a NATO military op- a naval operation in the Mediterranean was Ukraine, you know, under Yanukovych. Mm. Uh, mm-hmm. but, but to effectively knock Russia out of the Mediterranean uh, doubly, uh, you know, should they have, the, uh, have succeeded in evicting the Black Sea Fleet from Crimea and toppling the government in Syria and, and displacing Russian vessels from Tartus? Hmm. Yeah, we have uh, we have a chat room going, Rick, and uh, there's a few um, Scandinavian uh, listeners. Uh, one of them is in Finland, and he says uh, 
that people here debate whether it should become Finland should become a NATO member, uh, not realizing not realizing that for all intents and purposes the it already is the Finnish defense forces are integrated with NATO and take part in NATO operations and is basically already a member of NATO in practice. And uh, another one in Sweden says um, that's it. Uh, the same thing in Sweden. Uh, in a nutshell, uh, the cry is the Russians are coming. We need NATO for protection. I mean, it's amazing how this Russians, you know, the boogeyman Russian commie Soviet thing endures, you know, even on t- yeah. 20 years after the fall of the Soviet Union, you know, in, in, in these, well, all of European, all European countries, really, and particularly in Eastern Europe. No, you're correct. And, you know, the current uh, Finnish head of state uh, from the new, uh, you know, right-wing uh, dominated government uh, was quoted just in, in recent days, you know, within the last week or so, even though the polls show that uh, only slightly over 20% of Finns uh, support the, uh, you know, joining NATO. He said something about the people uh, don't know about these matters. You know, yeah. a contempt, like, an absolute contempt for his own uh, electorate and his own populace. And this is precisely the sort of, you know, elite and, and anti-democratic nature of the uh, Atlanticist or the Euro-Atlantic, um, you know, the con- uh, conspiracy uh, that we're talking about. There's a fellow residing in Sweden, an American expatriate, Al Burke, who's done extraordinary work. Um, he has a website called, uh, I think a rough translation would be Stop Sweden's... Uh, clandestine or surreptitious absorption into NATO and or covert perhaps and you know he's demonstrating the concerted effort through think tanks through the media through uh, you know certain government and ex-government officials to against overwhelming opposition amongst the populace in Sweden and Finland to drag these two nations into NATO and you know as I alluded to earlier for, for my money the Sweden and Finland are the uh, 29th and 30th member of uh, NATO de facto already I'm glad that somebody is you know in Scandinavia is aware of this and is ready to fight mm-hmm. against. But the extent to which people in general are unaware of just how deep the connections are amazed me. There was a report this week. Here's the headline: Pentagon to shut down over 20 facilities across Europe. The U.S. military announced it's closing down facil- 21 military facilities in half a dozen countries across Europe. A move the Pentagon said would trim $60 million in fat annually. And, you know, they give a description of what the facilities are, a shooting range, storage facilities, not much. Skeet shooting range. A shooting range. A skeet shooting range. No, it's not a military shooting range. Yeah. There's all these. There's all these basketball courts, swimming pools. We're going to shut those down. I mean, you know. But, I mean, what? That, go ahead. The way, it's, the way it's written, you know, it's just reported. And, oh, by the way. They're closing down 21 facilities, and they're just trimming. They have vast, you know, uh, facilities. Military presence, yeah. All across Europe. I mean, Europe is militarily occupied. Absolutely. But, but that's the thing, people, no one, you go and ask anybody in the street in any European country if they live under uh, an occupation or a military occupation or, a, or even, let's say, the, the, the American empire, even introduce that idea of an American empire, and you'll just get blank stares from people. People are not aware of it. It's, it's very smart. I mean, compared to the way empires were uh, managed and expanded in, in, in throughout history, this is a very different one uh, in the sense that uh, nobody, knows about, nobody knows about it, you know? Uh, it, it's a shot, it just boggles my mind sometimes. I, yeah, Rick, you called it a conspiracy. I mean, what else can it be but that? Of course, 
the conspiracy theorist is derided because the comeback is nearly always something like, but how could you keep such a conspiracy among so many people quiet? You know, two things. I mean, I, I'm thinking. I, I'm thinking of the uh, clever play on words, but uh, you know, astute political observation by, regrettably, now the the late American novelist uh, Gore Vidal. You know, arguably mm-hmm. the greatest American man of letters in the entire post World War II period, uh, who once said uh, the greatest enemies of conspiracy theories are conspirators, and. Uh, yeah. we, it's not a matter of speculating about this. It's as we were talking about, you know, catching people when they're speaking uh, to each other, right, amongst the initiated. Uh, there's a line, by the way, in uh, Eckerman's conversations with Goethe 200 years ago where, uh, you know, they're talking about Mozart's opera, The Magic Flute, and Goethe turns to Eckerman and says, the initiated will understand. That is, you know, there was Masonic symbolism and in the, in the so forth. I mean, that's not a conspiracy to remark that, is it? That's simply saying that when people talk in code uh, catchphrases or code languages amongst themselves, they're clearly uh, communicating something amongst each other that is not to be uh, passed on to a third party. And when, mm-hmm. when you hear this gobbledygook uh, jargon that you know is used at, say, an Atlantic Council, by the way, one of the major recipients of the uh, International Leadership Awards was, uh, you know, Senor Barroso of the European Union, but another one was mm-hmm. the Pentagon chief, uh, Chuck Hagel. And Joe Biden spoke there, and Kerry spoke there, and Madeleine Albright spoke there. And, you know, they're not talking about the weather here. And they're using, again, even very uh, – I meant to state, incidentally, the title of the two-day uh, you know, conference at the Atlantic Council in late April and early May was Towards a Europe-Free and Whole. And uh, that catchphrase, which uh, a variation of which is uh, Towards a Europe-Free, Whole, and at Peace – originates, as far as I can tell, in a speech made by George H.W. Bush in 1989 in Mainz, West Germany at the time. And the title of the speech was Europe Free and Whole. So every time you see that phrase, uh, the people using it know what they're talking about and what they're trying to communicate. But I defy anyone to tell me 99 out of 100 uh, you know, average citizens would have any idea what that meant. I, I thought you were going to say there that they originated in a speech by, or a talk by George Orwell. <laughs> no, I, I've often said that, you know, with all due respect to Mr. Eric Blair, George Orwell, uh, he mm. proves to have been not terribly imaginative. He, he, didn't, he didn't project one tenth of what they're capable of. He didn't have the imagination, no. no. Truth is far, far weirder than fiction in this case. Um, speaking of code words, so something I love about your site is that you, you collect all of the info together in one place. So this week you put out a, a press release that NATO issued... God, it's boring, it's bland as hell, but I've just highlighted this little part. <laughs> as we have seen in recent months, the global security situation remains fragile and unpredictable, and the alliance is increasingly surrounded by an arc of instability, from Ukraine to Syria to the Sahel, blah, 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 blah. blah. But, arc of instability, they know that's a Brzezinski term, right? Yes, precisely. And it was also used, of course, in the post-9-11 world, right? The arc of instability uh, roughly was an overlay for the uh, greater or broader Middle East or the Middle East Initiative or New Middle East, uh, you know, depending. But uh, this is, again, something that people amongst each other understand what what it pertains to, but it's not meant for public consumption. And, uh, you know, there's nothing, uh, you know, consp- uh, you're correct. On my website, I think probably three-quarters of the information there comes directly from a NATO or U.S. military sources. Right? I mean, if there's a conspiracy, they're, they're quite open about it. You know? Yeah. You uh, have I, to I know the lingo. 
Yeah, it's just they're, they're they're just assuming anyone who goes to those websites are going to be you know friendly inclined, if you will, and aren't going to take uh, issue with what's being reported there. But when you you know shine the light of day on their goings on, then uh, you know they're they're uh, uh, have their activities exposed in a manner they didn't intend them to be. By the way, um, when you mentioned the Sahel, in uh, early of 2012. Uh, there was an unsigned editorial, lead editorial in the Washington Post, uh, calling for NATO intervention in Mali. Hmm. And at, at about the same time, of course, leading U.S. Uh, officials in both political parties were calling for NATO to uh, intervene in Syria, uh, so that uh, this arc of instability, as you allude to, you know, from uh, Ukraine to Syria to the Sahel, uh, by the way, nowhere near the Atlantic Ocean in any of those three instances, uh, you know, suggest again the uh, post-Cold War uh, purpose to which NATO has been put, which is, uh, you know, the elaboration of an international military network, uh, uh, aggressive warfighting, expeditionary. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's, it's kind of mind-boggling. I mean, even when you're aware of the extent of it, you almost have to back-engineer it from in your mind to understand it de facto they already see the world as a militarized place under one command and any time there is a crisis it's one that they've provoked themselves to deal with what they think is the real underlying issue which is a local political issue mm. for example you mentioned in passing how they would uh, interfere in local politics in Europe throughout the last 50-60 years that reminded me of Gladio. Of course, Gladio, the Gladio network, is that a NATO thing, CIA thing? Or all of the above. Or all of the above. Yeah, I, I you know, know probably less than you do about it, uh, except that, you know, by its very nature, it's, it's difficult to, to suss out or to, uh, to know. There's a wonderful book written, I, I think uh, we're aware of recently, uh, that exposes the historic roots of that. But when you're talking about covert operations, uh, you, assume, you know, you judge by the evidence and then you try to, as you say, back engineer or read into uh, you know uh, what structure had to be in effect to do that, but it certainly suggests that a lot of provocations. You know, we know in Italy in the 1970s and and, uh, and uh, Turkey, surely. Um, you know, what's also sometimes referred to as deep government, that there were structures, security and political, put into place in NATO nations after World War II uh, that remain to some degree now. We can only speculate about how deep they ru they run, and uh, you know which activities they've been involved with. Uh, you know, history tends to suggest, you know, the Reichstag fire wasn't known as, uh, as being an internal affair until decades later, as, as we recall. Mm -hmm. And uh, there may be any number of instances like that, but, uh, you know, we don't even have to delve into something like that. Look how openly NATO embraces uh, what could only be described as terrorist, right? Cannibals in Syria, Nazis in Kiev. Uh, you know, how much more overt can you get than that? And there's not a, a, a disclaimer about that. There's not a word uh, trying to dissociate themselves from those sorts. Um, you know, we've uh, perhaps arguably, I, I would say, have reached a nadir, you know, a new low uh, in terms mm -hmm. of what's being tolerated in terms of, uh, you know, the furtherance of Western geopolitical uh, and economic objectives. And that no force, evidently, is too gruesome, too monstrous, too hideous, too inhuman, uh, you know, to be embraced as an ally in that struggle. Rick, we're going to cut it there. 
it's been a real pleasure having you on. Um, your insights and knowledge about this is just absolutely it's you're, a great service. It really I mean, is. You're you're fight you're kind of fighting a good fight there against uh, in terms of your whole your whole focus in, in in terms of stopping NATO. You know, I mean, there's. NATO tends to get overlooked, and uh, there's not many people out there who are specifically saying, especially in the U.S., I think, saying kind of stop NATO and here's what NATO's doing and here's what NATO is about. There's a few more in Europe maybe, but uh, nowhere near enough, and uh, the kind of stuff you're doing is indispensable, I think, because it really it's the heart of the American empire that is kind of uh, threatening to devour the entire planet, and uh, somebody has to do it. Thank you, all three. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Rick. Okay. Check out Rick's website. It's, uh, if you search for Stop NATO, you'll find it, but it's rickrozoff.wordpress.com. And, uh, yeah, thanks again, Rick. Yeah, I hope to talk to you again. Yeah, we'll do it again, definitely. Thanks. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay. There you go, folks. Um, yeah, that was uh, that was Rick Rozov, and he he sure knows his stuff. He you knows his stuff, and it's interesting that he's so dedicated to uh, to doing what he does. You know, yeah. Um, I mean, you can almost say it's a you can imagine it's a kind of an obsession if you look at his website and stuff. It's he's really he doesn't like NATO, and he's got a he's got uh, between his teeth there that he he wants to stop NATO, and um, not that you know he. I'm sure, and not that he thinks he has any chance of success, but he wants to expose what NATO is doing, and it needs to be exposed because it does, like I just said, go to the very heart of uh, the kind of um, world in which we live today, which is effectively uh, under an American empire, and it's growing and spreading uh, continually. And NATO is uh, appears to be the kind of uh, the enforcer of it. Mm. It's, it's it's the military enforcer of of the American imperial project and they're not doing it in traditional uh, imperialistic ways and since they're not going and conquering countries but they're uh, subsuming or absorbing countries into this NATO infrastructure uh, and then moving on and using NATO and using the other countries as new members of NATO to bomb and infiltrate uh, essentially poorer parts of the world uh, to open them up to uh, predatory capitalism yeah. in the West, you know? Most most of us only hear about it now and then. Libya, currently with the Ukraine issue, NATO, you know, yeah, it gets in the news. That. But it's almost like, you know, they want to be part of NATO, or NATO wants to, Ukraine to be part of NATO. Yeah. It's almost like, but NATO is this benevolent kind of organization, almost like the UN. And the thing is, in their charter, they have a charter, you know, it's almost like they try to style themselves as a, as a UN organization but uh it's not quite united nations in the sense that they're they're in the process of gathering nations together and ultimately they would like it to be a un um military organization you know up until now the un is essentially a group of nations uh, most of the nations in the world all getting together to decide on things this is going to be a, U, a military un where all of these countries are part of a military organization and they all decide to together to not yeah. discuss problems but to well discuss problems and then yeah. bomb bomb somewhere so they can uh, you know open it up like I said for Western interests, Western corporate and political interests. So um, and the the ease with which the political elite in any given country goes along with it. 
on the one hand, it's staggering, but when we hear about the vast quantities of, well, weapons mm-hmm. in place in these countries, it's a huge stick to hold over. I mean, last week, people were amazed that Belgium agreed to effectively launder federal money from the U.S. Mm-hmm. to the country in order to prop up the dollar back home. Mm-hmm. I think to the tune of three times the country's GDP. Mm-hmm. Then when you consider what Rick's saying, and he listed Belgium among six or seven Western European countries that have had nuclear weapons armed and ready to go yeah. and maintained these last 69, 65 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, what is Belgium going to do? Well, you just have to, like, I think we, talked, we mentioned this last week. Uh, in Belgium, probably most people who aren't Belgian or certainly aren't European uh, don't know this, but, I mean, NATO's headquarters uh, has always been in Belgium. I think it's just at Dead Mons in Belgium. Uh, I actually drove past it, and it's called. It's it's just this all again Orwellian kind of speak. It's called the Supreme. It's called Shape, the Supreme Headquarters of the Allied Powers in Europe, and that's what it's called today. Now, Allied Powers obviously was back to World War II. the Second World War, and, and just when NATO was kind of formed. But they still call it that, and they still have a Supreme Headquarters, a Supreme Commander of the Allied Powers in Europe. In, yeah. in Belgium, and he's an American. He's an American general. Yeah. So, I mean, the idea that Europe is not completely under the control of the U.S. government, the U.S. imperialist, the U.S. military, it's just a fiction. And it's the facts to prove that, to show that, uh, have been on the ground for, you know, yeah. for decades. Uh, Barroso was mentioned by Rick. Barroso is the non-elected president of the European Commission in Brussels. He said a couple of years ago, I'm like in Europe now to an empire. Oh, but, but, not, but not that kind of empire. We're a different empire, you know, where people democratically blah, blah, blah. The European Union came after in Brussels. Same place, same location as Shape. It's probably a NATO project. Well, what it's got me thinking is that first and foremost, the military strata is built on top of which everything else comes. It's not as you would sort of think, oh, NATO, yeah, I joined NATO many decades later after it's formed. But we actually had a, a question from a reader. I didn't get to ask it because I think Rick answered it. Um, she was asking, why is it that there's this long selection process? Say a country has agreed to join. I mean, surely they just jump at the chance and say, yeah, yeah, come in, join us. Well, he says it's because of two things interoperability, which means their military hardware needs to be in functioning with, it needs to integrate into the existing system. Mm-hmm. And of course, 2% of the country's GDP need to start, need to start buying weapons from our exactly. approved suppliers. But it, it goes beyond that. What it makes me think is the U.S. effectively made a decision, probably before World War II, but let's say during or immediately after it, to structure their entire industry economy, the whole society, on a military principle, mm-hmm. with the Pentagon at the center of it. Mm-hmm. Everything functions from it. All of their high-tech and industry are effectively spin-offs of the underlying structure, which is military in nature. And when you spread that to other countries, you're not just getting interoperability of the use of the weapons as a sort of, oh yeah, make sure you're up to scratch on that. You're turning it into an integrated Tech, technological system that is at its foundation 
militaristic. Yeah, I think you have a, you raised a very interesting point. Where first you have the military step, and then you have the financial and economic step. Like first NATO in Europe, and then uh, European Union, and that's uh, quite similar to the modus operandi described by Noam Klein, where actually military intervention is only a preparatory step to um, give birth to a global, deregularized private market open to speculation, exploitation, and uh, maximizing profit, basically. So those two steps uh, go hand in hand. In, in. Yeah. yeah, so um, there's some uh, breaking news here. Uh, Rick just kind of mentioned it. I don't know if he was... Um, it's probably from an, a couple hours ago, but this Poroshenko guy, uh, the Chocolate King, uh, has claimed victory in the Ukrainian presidency, presidential elections. Uh, he claims he won more than 50%, 55% of the vote, and he needed 50% of the vote to win outright. Otherwise, it would go to a second round. So uh, so the Chocolate King is now president of New Landestam. Yeah, although as, as the two main com, you know, contenders were, were Timoshenko, you know, uh, the kind of alter, the evil alter ego of Princess Leia uh, with the Danishes on her, on her head. <laughs> she was the gas princess, and he's the, the Chocolate King, you know, and I, I thought that really... Uh, it would have been better if they had a combined forces, you know. Uh, you know, they could have produced uh, a new product, a kind of explosive chocolate or something, or gas. Yeah, it was gas. Well, bubbly chocolate. Yeah. Um, uh, no, apparently, you know, the Dark Lord himself also ran. Lord Vader. That's right. Darth Vader <laughs> ran, yeah. Well, no, did he run? I thought he was banned from He running. was kicked out cause yeah. for being, I don't know. Too close to the bone? Yeah. There's uh, <laughs> some guy dressed up as Lord Vader because he probably would have won, you know. But it's actually it's horrible. This guy is just this Poroshenko guy. It's just another oligarch. He is uh, he's pro-Western. He's you know pro-NATO. He is the one who just a few weeks ago um, offered a bounty essentially um, to any uh, Ukrainian male who would go and fight uh, against the separatists in eastern Ukraine. He, he offered them um, more than the standard wage for for a Ukrainian soldier per day, and he also said that he would their lives would be insured for something like about eighty four or eighty thousand dollars or so. So he was actively recruiting and using the lure of money uh, to uh, you know, and at this stage, you know, kind of relatively poor uh, Ukrainian men to join the military to go and fight against their own countrymen uh, and also to assuage any concerns about what if I die, what will my mother do? Well, we'll give her some money when you die. Uh, so this is the guy, this is the kind of guy, who, and he said this publicly, and it was in the news, so this is the kind of person who is now uh, the president, the new president, the new oligarch in Ukraine. And I really hope that uh, all those protesters in Kiev leaving aside the right sector and the violent ones, but the people who actually were protesting at the time uh, and who got sidelined by the US-sponsored kind of neo-Nazi right-wingers, I hope all of those people um, are happy uh, because they've basically got to uh, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. Nothing has changed, and it's because they didn't stand up uh, to the clear evidence for foreign Western infiltration and uh, meddling 
in their country and the political system in their country. They thought it was great, you know, even though maybe a lot of them probably knew that there was meddling going on, but because they're so deluded and enamored with the idea of joining the European Union, they 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 just followed it and and, and went along with it and didn't protest and uh, and now they've got unfortunately um, I don't want to say they've got what they deserve but they've got what they were always going to get uh, as a result of that kind of uh, I don't know what you call it that 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 kind of outcome it seems like a... yeah um, now Rick Rosov sees the situation as being pretty bleak. He mentioned at one point that Russia, Russia has got essentially a choice. We said he's to bring it to a head to a war mm. or to capitulate. He doesn't see how they can not capitulate. But um, do you see a middle road there? Um, I don't think they have to capitulate. I don't think they will capitulate. Um, I mean, they're making moves right now. Have been making moves to looking east towards China. Uh, there is still, despite what everything Rick said and the expansion of NATO, there is still a big part of the world that is not NATO aligned, uh, and that NATO's goal is to make them all NATO aligned, make them members of NATO. But you've got most of South America, you've got uh, all of China and all of Russia, and that's not a negligible part of the uh, you mm. know, percentage of the of the landmass of the world and of its population. So um, it's not over just yet, but. Uh, and certainly if Russia is smart enough, they can at the very least stand uh, against this expansion of NATO and the, the imperialist predation of, of Western powers and simply bring it to a kind of a, a checkmate or a, 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 you know, an impasse or a standoff where the, the march of NATO is halted. But of course the problem is, how long, how long does any one person like Putin, who's willing to do that, uh, live, you know? Uh, and who follows them, you know, and with the way that Western powers and intelligence agencies go about the process of manipulating and interfering in the internal affairs of countries, it's not a good prognosis for any country, really. Uh, they would really have to lock down their borders and be very, very careful and very aware about, uh, very, very aware of that threat to make sure that it doesn't happen, you know, kind of going forward into, you know, Next, the following generations and for for the foreseeable future because that's they're just waiting to do that and if they if they as soon as they see a chance they're going to get in and, and try and do it you know so uh, but again Russia the reason Russia is in this position right now is because Russia is such a big country uh, and it's not quite so easily kind of overthrown as uh, smaller European nations uh, or other countries around the world have been in the past by by U.S. interests so. It's hard to say, really. Yeah, two things, maybe, along this analysis. First, historically, Rick was mentioning uh, Napoleon, Hitler. We mentioned the Roman Empire. And uh, the three empires didn't manage to get Russia. The, for centuries, the Roman Empire stopped around the Volga River, didn't go beyond the Germanic land. Napoleon destroyed his empire, trying to invade uh, Russia. And um, Adolf Hitler stopped at uh, Stalingrad, was stalled at Stal in Stalingrad for, for years. Uh, that's the first point. The second point that uh, military dynamics don't occur in a vacuum. There are many other factors at play. Uh, so uh, yeah. fa fa evolution on the financial 
front, on mm -hmm. the economic front, mm -hmm. on the environmental front, can uh, have much more importance and uh, totally disrupt the current military plan. And indeed, uh, as Joe said, if you only take into account the military dynamics, it looks bleak, but uh, there are many other things or many other factors that might come into play. Mm. Yeah, it's hard to tell, and things may come to a very short, uh, abrupt <laughs> end uh, in a certain sense before then, before any of these longer-term uh, predictions have even have a chance to, to play out. Uh, other things may intercede. I mean, the planet itself is, uh, you know, to some extent conscious and aware uh, in some way of, uh, of these kind of things, it seems, because, you know, as as we've mentioned in in other areas on our websites, um, there seems to be a, a kind of a at least a, in a what's the term in a kind of a circumstantial kind of way. There's a, there seems to be a correlation between um, the state of humanity and, and you know what's going on on the planet. The state of chaos, militarization, wars, rumors of wars. And uh, kind of geological upheaval on the planet. Like, I mean, we've been charting the uh, kind of stark increase in all sorts of potentially catastrophic uh, natural events on the planet over the past five, six, seven years. And, you know, earthquakes, sinkholes, uh, tsunamis, uh, major hurricanes, typhoons, and of course the large increase in the number of fireballs seen on our skies. So, I mean, this doesn't seem to be uh, separate or detached from uh, what's going on at, uh, on the planet in terms of humanity, at least in a, in a circumstan uh, you know, circumstantial kind of way, as in the, there's a correlation there, if only as in the sense that it's happening at the same time, you know. Um, so that's another factor, as Pierre was saying, that uh, could uh, intercede or could change the, the game plan. Yeah, and along what you say, actually, according to mainstream history, the end of the Roman Empire came from barbarians. Mm. And uh, a lot of evidence point to a different cause, much more serious, actually. Um, cosmically induced catastrophes mm. destroyed the Roman Empire. But interestingly, um, mainstream history and even uh, ancient chroniclers transformed the report of... Uh, cosmic events, fireballs, for example, destroying Roman armies into battles mm -hmm. where barbarian armies destroy Roman armies. Mm -hmm. That's an interesting uh, shift or link between uh, military fights we are talking about and uh, celestial uh, interventions. Yeah, and that's something almost to be welcomed <laughs> in a certain sense when you really look into the kind of psychology psychological profile profile of the people behind this uh, Western imperial plot or plan. Um, it's almost, you know, you get a bit, you can get a bit depressed about it and uh, think that, Jesus Christ, someone needs to come along here and sort this out. And it's not the Russians then, <laughs> you know, send in the aliens or something. You know, somebody has, you know, there's no other way to kind of stop this because, uh, I mean, just when Rick was talking there, uh, or when you were talking, Neil, actually, about um, about how the U.S. economy was essentially established around uh, uh, the manufacture of, of weapons, 
militarization of the economy, essentially. It was expressly stated somewhere. Yeah, a long time ago. Um, you can imagine that they continue to destroy normal traditional jobs, particularly in the US, but elsewhere around the world. Their plan is to maybe have this kind of, like said about the war on terror, to have perpetual war. And obviously for perpetual war, you need an infinite supply of, um, of weapons. So I could see a future where, for example, in the US, the only jobs available are, are, that are available are working in, in a, or a military uh, kind of defense contractor uh, who makes weapons and almost the entire population is given jobs. There's no unemployment, but they're all kind of working in chain gangs or something, producing bullets and bombs. And this dystopian future kind of appeared before my eyes, uh, well, as you were mentioning it. And, it's here. Uh, well, I mean... The two million Americans uh, <clears throat> in prison? Yeah. Well, I'm thinking. I mean, they're uh, making. I'm thinking of a that kind of fictionalized at this yeah. point uh, scenario where that's almost a reality, or almost all the population is either living in po- in complete poverty. Anybody who has a job is working for the military-industrial complex, producing weapons, so that the the kind of NATO-type organizations can continue to bomb any rest of uh, provinces of or, or um, that are holding out around the world, you know. And um, in that scenario. And you know, down the line type of thing. If that's where ultimately it would go under the stewardship of these psychopaths in power, who, who just that's what they want to see happen. You know, uh, destruction and domination and greed. Uh, that yeah, before that would ever happen, you would hope that some major cataclysm would come along and just kind of get rid of the whole lot. You know, at least wipe this little clean and give give uh, humanity a chance to kind of start again. And because it's gone horribly wrong, at least from the idea of there being having been some kind of potential for positive evolution of humanity into a <clears throat> a kind of more utopian type future or at least a a stable decent place uh, to live um the planet is increasingly going in the opposite direction and uh so yeah bring on the fireballs more of them you know that's why we chart them actually we're like it's not because we're worried about them. We're just excited every day to see. How, many, how many did we get this week? Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's, it's really only a little anecdote, but, you know, uh, there's a number of fireball reports that quickly get dispelled in the media because this country or that country says, oh, that was us. We, we tested another rocket launch. And, you know, I... I I don't know what kind of cosmic coincidence it is, but if you look at the behavior of these rockets high in the atmosphere, compare them with some actual, you know, more or less confirmed footage of fireballs or comet fragments at the same, you know, high up in the atmosphere, it is sometimes impossible to tell them apart. Yeah, yeah it was on a Twitter. It, and it's, it would, it would, if you were if you didn't know one or the other, I mean, you would have a kind of a schizophrenic moment where you can't tell them apart. Essentially, which, which is the reality. Chunk, but essentially the same thing, rockets and, and uh, you know, chunks of rock and iron that are kind of, you know, burning off as fuel, essentially, uh, both of them burning off, giving off a fuel or their energy and it creates the same atmospheric uh, kind of residue. And, uh, yeah, so, yeah, I can imagine. I have a vision of their hyper-macho, look what we can do. We can destroy you now. 
displays of the technology and you know sending up rockets as tests, or should it come to it, the real thing, firing a, an ICBM at Russia, you know, being matched and completely dwarfed by something that mm-hmm. that'll be flung at you from outer space. I mean, yeah. and one of the few differences between a, a fireball and a conventional rocket is the electromagnetic pulse. Exactly, yeah. And, uh, but nuclear weapons do have electromagnetic pulse. It's interesting to see that while there is this increase in uh, fireball activity, there is uh, an increase in intensity on the military front. Mm-hmm. Um, so the correlation probably exists on the human cosmic connection level that you describe. More oppression, more lies, more violence. More violence can trigger celestial reactions. But at the same time, this increase in intensity on the military front is like a preparation for the cover-up. Like in mm-hmm. Victor Kluge's words, you don't need uh, World War. Uh, you don't need fireballs or special intention to cover World War Three or to disguise World War Three. You need World War Three and its nuclear weapon and EMP signature to cover celestial intention. And here we kind of close the circle. And we come back to the uh, rewriting of history made by uh, Roman historians and chroniclers where all armies destroyed by fireballs were transformed by, oh, our army was destroyed by a horde of uh, bloodlusting barbarians. Yeah, Yeah, although I can imagine how historically you could uh, rewrite that and cover it up, but in the moment, I think it would be, especially in a modern technological age where uh, global communications are, are, are quite possible, uh, quite, quite easily available to, to many people, um, it might be hard to, for the powers that be to uh, well, cl- claim that a fireball, for example, that came shooting through the sky and blew up a, a NATO base, for example, or for example, the supreme headquarters of the Allied powers in Europe, uh, you know, crossing fingers. But um, if that were to happen, you know, certainly there would be reports of possibly anyway, people seeing uh, well, something shooting through the sky. And, but then even then, in, maybe in this context, in this, whoa, shit, the, the whole world's on the brinks of war, perhaps, you know, maybe, yeah, maybe actually it would true, actually yeah. be mm. easier. Maybe it would be, even if people saw it mm. shooting through the sky and said it looked like a fireball, it looked like a meteorite. Uh, no, that's the new Russian technology. Uh, they've developed a yeah. well, meteorite-like missile. There was, a, there was a Russian MP when the one hit Chelyabinsk who, in all seriousness, got up and said, this is the Americans testing a new weapon on us. Yeah. He was a nutso, though, wasn't he? Yeah, he was a nutso, and he was put down. And the, the actual story of what it was, yeah. I guess, and that, it didn't cause enough damage to create... Well, it certainly, it would, be, yeah, it, it would be very coincidental, uh, <laughs> and I'm saying that disingenuously, coincidental if right now, you know, or at least appears to be rather coincidental that just as this uh, kind of increase in fireball activity, meteorite activity has, has been happening for several years, that um, the Russian kind of standoff with Russia uh, and the U.S. is happening and the whole kind of saber rattling and you know, rumors of war, wars and rumors of war, is, is, is increasing in this way right now, because it would serve certainly as a very good cover, like we've just been saying. Uh, 
So you have to wonder, though, is that a coincidence or a conspiracy theory? <clears throat> it can be both, depending on the level of analysis. This being said, um, about this transforming cosmic events into a military explosion, there are two other factors that help mixing up both. Is that First, Chilabins was Chilabinsk bullied was just a baby compared to some other potential events. So if you have a great magnitude event, you can imagine the level of trauma, of confusion, problem in communication, EMP frying uh, most devices, and the emotional state of the population, falling into a hysterized emotional thinking. And the second factor is uh, as described by Gustave Le Bon, you know, in those crowd phenomena. Crowds resonate on the same frequency, on the same emotional frequency. And as soon as there is a symbol, an image that is planted like a seed in their mind, that's what is going to grow. It has nothing mm-hmm. to do with reason. So just plant the, the word rocket. Just show a picture of a rocket and mm-hmm. that will spread in all minds through this kind of limbic resonance. Mm-hmm. And that will be the truth for all people involved, even yeah. though they might have seen something totally differently, if they survived the Yes, it's quite, witnessing. it's quite uh, interesting as well that the mainstream media, despite this massive increase in fireball activity in our skies over the past seven, eight years, um, the mainstream media reports on them locally here and there, but there's certainly no broader uh, global uh, discussion of it as, a, as any kind of phenomenon. Yet, anybody can go and look at the statistics on um, the American Meteorite Society website and see that there has been a a stark increase in not only sightings but uh, impacts and certainly surely that should be something that um, should be in the news or should have been in the news over the past few years but it hasn't been you know and again here's my conspiracy uh, <laughs> my conspiracy minded uh, angle, angle, angle coming which is that you know yeah I mean it's interesting that that hasn't been discussed and because if it was discussed then it would be in the public consciousness public awareness and maybe it would be less uh, easy in the event of a meteorite impact to uh, claim that it was a meteorite, mm-hmm. that it was a missile from Russia. Very true. So, yeah. What else have we got to say? I think that's pretty much it for this week. Yeah, um, let's leave it there. Yeah. We hope you enjoyed the show, folks. Um, thanks to our listeners. Uh, thanks again to Rick and to our chatters who have been having a good time as usual in our chat room. Uh, we will be back next Sunday with... Next week we're speaking with Eric Dreitzer. Eric Dreitzer is... He is a... Geopolitical analyst, I suppose yes. say. Frequently on RT and Press TV. So we're getting his take on the goings on around the world at the moment. And yeah, tune in. Same time next week. Have a good one. Have a good one, folks. Bye.